and welcome back to uh, Texan Abroad. It's been a while, a little bit of a hiatus since we uh, had our last episode, but uh, I am here with uh, one of my favorites and one of my regulars, good old Bob, and we're going to hammer on a couple of things that have been interesting him and uh, interesting yeah, me over the last here. couple of months. Bob, thanks for joining us. You from Moscow, me from Istanbul. Very happy to be here as always, Bill, and uh, thanks for hosting these uh, awesome conversations. Yeah. Um, so, well, I know that we have two topics. You have a topic on your mind. I have a topic on my mind. We'll probably jump around a little bit with some other things that I have written down uh, that have been popping in and out of my head the last couple of weeks. The thing that I wanted to talk about, and I know you just told me a minute ago that you're not really sure what it is. It's it's essentially what what they are calling NFTs right now, which is a non-fungible token. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you saw this in the news. It was today or yesterday that Jack Dorsey sold his first ever tweet for three million dollars. Right now, the question begs itself, how in the hell can you sell a tweet? Right. A tweet is a tweet. It's a digital thing. It's just out there in the ether. That's where the NFTs come in. Essentially, uh, using blockchain, they create a record that this collectible item belongs to you like a like a piece of art so the place where i first kind of found out about nfts was actually in the nba so the nba uh you know they're having their season as always it's going pretty well very interesting i'm a sports fan love to follow it but one of the things that's the subplot going on is the collectible cards uh that have now started to skyrocket i think a lot of people i was actually talking to someone about it this morning it's a good sign that the economy is actually going to recover a lot quicker because you have these prices of collectibles that's kind of going through the roof. Well, baseball cards, basketball cards, I can wrap my head around. I collected them when I was young. NFTs or what they're add, calling. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. I should add that my brother-in-law owns a uh, owns and runs a sport card trading store in Reno, Nevada. So uh, I, I'm I didn't, sure I didn't know the prices are skyrocketing, but I'm sure my no, sister is very happy. Absolutely through the roof right yeah. now, right? He just if told me had, he had a uh, Michael Jordan, the rookie card that he was. Uh, that uh, thing is worth. Clients, yeah. The um, funny thing is we used to have, I remember when I was like 13 or 14, I asked my dad for a, there was a particular set of basketball cards that had, so many different rookies, right? Because it was this year when it was Patrick, U Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon, a lot of these guys, they didn't come out in the same year, but there was one kind of set of cards where this was the first year that they made cards for all of these guys. And it was, I mean, I remember I sold it maybe 10 or 15 years ago and I got a few grand for it. Like it was mm -hmm. a pretty high price, but at that time, no one was really buying and trading cards. Now it's again, it's just kind of gone crazy. Good to, um, know, good to know. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure my sister and her husband are. But happy. so there's a technological aspect to this. So, again, there's a company called Top Shot, right? And what they essentially do, um, as far as I can understand it, I haven't gotten in on the on the fad yet, but they um, create little highlight clips, like 10, 15 second highlight clips. Sometimes it's a dunk, sometimes it's a block, sometimes it's a steal, sometimes it's a three-point shot. And through blockchain, these video clips uh, become essentially collectibles. So you have a LeBron James dunk and they have a player, they have a number, uh, and then it's, again, a video clip. And they're tradable, right? Because it's 
you have this certificate of authenticity and you essentially sign up to stand in line to actually get uh, a like like a pack of baseball cards. You get a set of like five or six. You don't know what's going to be in it. It's kind of you pay, you know, 20 bucks or 50 bucks or however much, 100 bucks, and you get four or five, six videos. And you might get, and I was reading about a guy or listening to another podcast where they talked about a guy who opened his first set and there was a LeBron James number one. And it was basically, he has it now posted on one of these, uh, you know, forums for sale for $300,000, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, so the NFT thing is basically you take a digital thing, you create a blockchain certificate of authenticity and you sell it as a collector's item. So you have a LeBron James dunk. You have Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet. Uh, there's been some artwork. I think it was a, maybe it was a Britney Spears virtual art uh, kind of thing that was sold recently at auction. But again, all of these have things, you, they're sorry not to interrupt. real. Have you ever seen the statue of Britney Spears on all fours? Like, uh, I mean, like leaning down on all fours, <laughs> giving birth? There's a famous statue. I, I've heard about this statue. There's a birthing position where you're like supposed to be yeah. on your all fours on your knees and then on your elbows. And it's, uh, it's supposed to be actually good for the pelvis to kind of like, anyway, it's supposed to like ease the childbirth process. But there's, a, there's an artist who made a statue about that after she had her first child. Uh, anyway, Yeah, so. I think I basically remember that awkward thing as well. I, well she's yeah. actually been in the news because... Tried to erase uh, it from my mind. <laughs> we'll take a small tangent here. Um, so she was in the news actually because of uh, conservatorship, I believe is what the, the technical term for it. Um, where essentially someone is appointed. Her father, years ago, was appointed to be her conservator, or the person who watches out for her. I can't remember if that's the correct legal term or not. But um, so she actually doesn't have control of like some of her finances and her basic decisions. Um, and so there's been a lot of media attention around Brittany and trying to allow courts to take her out of this kind of state so that she can kind of take back control of her life a little bit again. And she doesn't even want full control. She just wants more control than she has now. But one of the things I had on my list was actually um, some content recommendations. Just I know that you watched a movie recently that, uh, that I'm about to watch maybe sometime in the next week or two. Um, there's a movie called uh, I Care, like uh, I Care A Lot, something like that. It's a Netflix movie. And it's based on this whole idea. So this woman uh, takes old people, has them declared incompetent, takes control of their resources and basically robs them blind. Right. She puts them in a nursing home that doesn't cost very much. And she takes all of their money. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and she actually ends up doing it to like a, a Russian mobster. Of course, it's a Russian mobster. Um, and that, you know causes actually a big problem and and that's where the the story kind of goes actually it's kind of interesting uh, i didn't like it at first it grew on me it pissed me off in the end but then in the very end i liked it so um i actually would recommend it, it it's worth watching if you've got a netflix or if you uh yeah, got a way I'll to check watch it, it. yeah check it um but anyways so going back, back to, to nfts to yeah nfts so these non-fungible tokens and i was trying to talk to someone the other day about it and i just said now, we started going off on the gold standard and all of these other kinds of tangents because gold itself, right, doesn't have particularly great value. But because we associate value with it, because it's a limited resource, 
you know, people price it. It's like a, you know, kind of a conservative thing to buy. Right. Uh, but what, what do you think about the idea that um, essentially, and I was just reading an article this afternoon that was talking about social media creators uh, essentially splicing up their videos before they release them and selling them as NFTs, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a favorite YouTuber, you can own 30 minutes or 30 seconds of his video and like invest in it. And you can trade this video for that video. It'll be a collector's card. Now, mm-hmm. you're never going to have something you can hold on to. It's always going to be this digital thing. But it, I mean, it's not tangible, but it's still a collectible, right? And as I mentioned, the same thing that gives art value or baseball cards uh, or gold gives this value as well. What do you think about this? I know this is maybe the first you've heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, no. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about this, but uh, uh, some initial reactions. I mean, I do know a little bit about computer science and how cryptography works. I'm not an expert by any means, but I would say the the first uh, reaction I have is that it's it's maybe it's really not that different from existing legal ownership, right? Because um, uh, this is where, you know, technically like even if you say you have a blockchain that records ownership of some asset, okay, that's what we're talking about. Uh, You could also just have a legal uh, contract or whatever that records asset, right? Uh, That's how we do it normally in the, like you have a stock certificate, you own a part of the company. It's a, it's a certificate of ownership of something, right? Or you have a deed to a house, uh, maybe a better example. So you own that house because you have this paper, you have this token or whatever, and uh, you can't, it's not fungible as in it's not copyable because it has uh, a notary signature and seal and et cetera, et cetera. So it has some kind of defenses against being copied. Obviously, we know those defenses aren't always perfect, like people fake counterfeit some of this stuff. Uh, but uh, the point is, it's not that... To me, it doesn't sound that revolutionary because even if you own a video or some part of a video, that video is still online. Anyone can record it. So it's like um, you're recording the ownership. Uh, I mean, in theory, you could like integrate it up and down the the technology chain. Uh, I mean, like through all computers and smartphones, et cetera, so that only whoever owns it can watch the video and anyone else who watches it has to pay like a license fee or something. Right. Yeah. Like you could theoretically, you could imagine that, but in practice uh, it's like, even if say someone has to pay a license fee to watch it, um, it would be like a movie at a movie theater. Okay. So the movie theater has to get the official copy to show but if you have some content that's worth something and people are watching it, they can always just record it's a pirate. It it's a pirated yeah. version. Yeah. Somehow it has to get projected on the screen for people to watch. And then that gives them the opportunity to copy it. So it's not going to stop piracy. Like as in, it's not going to control uh, unofficial or illegal copying. What it could do is just um, give you a technolo- technological equivalent to contractual ownership uh, that is like visible to anyone who uh, is part of that, uh, you know, or can see into the blockchain, I guess is the way you put it. So, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, do not, you it's think really not it very could... different, to be honest, because like if but I you... own a video, oh, just sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead. If I own a movie in the US, I own the rights to the movie. It's the same concept, right? It's like I'm a I'm a Hollywood studio. I own that movie. So anyone who watches it, 
you know, through the uh, validity of the copyright, which in the U.S. is like 120 years or something, uh, has to pay me or like anyone who copies it has to pay me under license. So uh, like it's really as a concept, it doesn't strike me as that different from the the copyright principles we've had for several hundred years already. Uh, it's just more of a technical tool of how you kind of enforce that copyright, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I I just, yeah, I don't know that they're going to ever try and use it as like a, okay, you own this little video or this piece of art so no one else can see it. It's just like, look, you can have the Mona Lisa stays in the Louvre or wherever it might be at any given plate at any given time, but there's going to be, you just Google image search it. You want to see what it looks like, right? Right. There are high definition images of it uh, that you can find pretty much anywhere. I'm not sure that it's, it's aiming to restrict kind of viewers in that way. I think the idea is it's a digital collectible, right? Yeah. yeah. The, again, so, the way, the way that your, you know, your sister's husband has like baseball cards, which there's not only one Michael Jordan rookie card, right? There's hundreds, perhaps thousands of them out there. Who knows how many have been thrown away over the years or been destroyed in some way, but there's a, a limited number of them, but more than one person has it, but it's, it's valuable because they're not making any more. It's old, right? That kind of idea. They're trying to take that collectible aspect again, like, like Jack Dorsey's tweet, right? And you can own quote, you know, in air quotes own mm -hmm. Jack. Dor he sold it for $3 million to some Malaysian yeah. guy. But um, Sorry to, yeah, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I would make two points here. One, that um, Jack Dorsey already owned his tweet because under U.S. copyright like law, anything you author, a lot of people don't know this, but anything you author, uh, you write or music you produce or any creative work, you automatically own the copyright. You don't have to put a copyright symbol or register it. You don't have to register with it. Well, anything. right. Copy, cut, yes. Copyright exists uh, at the moment of creation in the United States. It depends on jurisdiction. But the United States, you own the copyright. If you write a five-page um, whatever, if you wrote it, you don't have to register it with anyone, although there is a process for that, but just to kind of be able to easily prove that you were the first to register, right? But the legally, the standard is you produce it, so you own the copyright. No one right, can but you, you also can't. You can't copyright certain things that are too short, right? There's aspects true, yeah. of copyright because like you it's can't copyright phrase, yeah. uh, in my own profession, you can't copyright like business English or English materials because there's like, you can't copyright essentially an English sentence or an English grammar exercise, right? Yeah. Twitter has such a small number of characters. You might, it, depending on what he wrote, right? It, it very well may fall under copyright law. It also very very well may not it kind of depends on a lot of aspects of it. that's interesting yeah that's a uh that's a yeah function of twitter specifically but uh mm -hmm. yeah the other point i would make is uh what is interesting about this whole scenario and just as like a thought experiment uh you know what in einstein loved these like the what they call the gedanken experiment thought experiment uh anyways just a thought experiment uh Basically, in the real world, we're used to all items being uh, unique. You know what I mean? So like you brought up the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa is unique. You can take you can make a print of the Mona Lisa, but it's not the original Mona Lisa. Right. And mm -hmm. uh, there are examples of uh, counterfeits of originals. But uh, I think we all understand that if you really look deep, if you look at microscopes and 
you analyze the paints or if it's currency that's been copy, you know, uh, counterfeited, uh, US dollar, you $20 bill, you can like look at it in detail, micro detail and what are the fibers, what is the holograms and all that. And you can kind of figure it out, right? Uh, so we always assume that um, those kind of unique uh, physical creations are non-fungible as you'd say, right? Uh, but then on the other hand, Digitally, we assume that like everything is fungible, uh, and that's like a classic uh, kind of understanding of digital stuff. That is to say, if I have a movie file uh, and I share it on BitTorrent, or if I have it just an image and I share it on WhatsApp, everyone who receives that image gets the same file, like down to the last bit, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so there's like two extremes. One in the physical world, we assume it's all different like every object is a little bit different because even if you mass produce like uh some part that goes into a car there's going to be slight differences a great example of this are uh say guns okay guns are mass produced uh they're supposed to all be the same interchangeable parts you put them in guns but we know that when the crime is committed uh there's minute like right the striations on the on the bullet exactly yeah. and we can we can say no it was that gun not the other gun exact same model of gun uh, same production line and they weren't trying to make a difference but there are these minute little differences that creep in in the production and so or in the final product and so we can like trace it right uh, so what I'd say is what's interesting is as a thought experiment both of those you could you could flip it around like theoretically as in say there's no reason that if we had a really good technology you could analyze the Mona Lisa down to every atom uh, and you could produce an exact copy of the Mona Lisa uh, as in to say, no matter how detailed your analysis, if you mix them up, like, you know, you do the, you put two hand, you put one thing that's real, one thing that's fake and the hands in front of you, whatever you put it behind your back, switch them around and ask someone to guess which one was which. Well, once you, what I'm saying is once you've mixed them up, no one, literally no expert, no matter how many uh, experts you bring in to analyze it, will be able to tell the difference, right? Because they're literally physically identical. It's the same atoms in the same positions. Uh, all of the information has been copied anything you could ever possibly measure has been copied. So they're literally physically indistinguishable and there's nothing about it you could ever like trace from one to the other. Well, there's actually, there's a theory supposedly that the Mona Lisa actually is a fake. Yeah, uh, I don't be, know if yeah. you've ever heard that because yeah. it was the, one of the reasons the Mona Lisa became very famous is because it went missing. It was stolen for a brief time in the early, uh, early 1900s. And when it came back, you know, they used the, uh, I guess the best technology at the time to, to prove that it was the Mona Lisa. And they, I guess they called the guys. I don't know all of the story, but uh, there's a theory that actually that the Mona Lisa that is in the Louvre is not the Mona Lisa because it was, uh, uh, it was replaced uh, years and years ago. But yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. You can so make I'm something saying that's the physical world is indistinguishable. It, we tend to think like you're talking about tokenization of digital objects to make them each one distinct and unique. We tend to think the physical world is just naturally that way, but, it's not like it's not inherently that way. There are no laws of physics that say it has to be that way. Uh, atom, atoms themselves are fungible. So like if you have uh, gold atoms, they're all the same as the other gold atoms. If you mix them up, there's no way to tell which ones are which. You can't put a label on a gold atom and track it. It's literally physically impossible. No, uh, yeah. Laws of physics. So like uh, anyways, you could create an exact replica of, say, a Michael Jordan card. Uh, the thing is, if you looked at all the Michael Jordan cards, that exists, the rookie cards, 
they're all going to be slightly different from each other. Uh, that has to do sure, with how sure. they've been owned, where they've been stored. But even the original production, each time that printing press came down, it had a slightly different amount of ink or like the fibers were a little different, et cetera. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But in theory, you could like, you could make it all fungible. And then on the flip side, what I want to say is in the digital world, we always think that like every image or every file, uh, every website is uh, like the same uh, as in they're all like fungible, but there's no reason why. And I guess we're starting to see this because in the early internet, everything was like untracked and it was just free. Uh, like anyone who visited a website would see the same thing. Like you go to Google, you search, you'd see the same results. And now we know that's not true. It's based off your individual uh, history and like all kinds of parameters they're tracking on you. So you see different search results than I do, even if we search. Sure. Yeah, thing. absolutely. And so, and there's no reason why even in say like WhatsApp, which is a, you know, you can send images. WhatsApp could insert an algorithm in there that every time an image gets sent, it gets coded as like a transaction that I send it to you. It's a $0 transaction. Like if you put it in Bitcoin terms, blockchain terms, right? But it could still record it and put it into the image. Uh, you can embed it into the image such that any, you know, even though a, a billion people or whatever, 500 million people share some image of Donald Trump, each image is slightly different. And we can track the uh, uh, kind of the history of that image and like what, you know, uh, what's been the kind of like, life history, I guess. Yeah. Life, uh, experience of that image and who has, has changed hands in a way that like you could for a physical object before. So anyways, there's basically no, like these, uh, the boundaries between the physical and real world sometimes is kind of misleading. And to think that, uh, you can tokenize the digital world, but you can also, uh, fungibilize the real world. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like with, with 3d no, printing I and stuff, I could see a world where you could make an exact copy of a, Michael Jordan card because we have atom level 3D printers that can just print it like the exact atom. Well, I think stuff. that's so like that, that's another yeah. interesting question. Like, because uh the idea that again, one of the things that makes a real object valuable, right? Um, is a Michael Jordan rookie card. The reason it's quote unquote valuable is because it was made 40 years ago or it's oh, rare. It's rare. It's limited right. quantity. Yeah. Right. Well, and they Supply can't. They can't make anymore technically because it was right. supposed to be made in 1986. Right. Yeah. So you're not now. You could feasibly, actually, as you said, on almost a molecular level, create the exact same thing, which makes it, uh, you know, not unique. Right. Because you can just recreate them now. Then. The question becomes, is it a real one or is it a new one? Like a new, I want one of the old ones, not one of the new ones. But that's right? the point. You can't tell the difference. So if you had a, if you had a pile of them, like 10 new ones and 10 old ones and you mix them up once they're mixed. And if no one was watching exactly which card went where, you know, you don't have cameras or anything, you put it into a box and you mix them, then there's no going back because uh, they're literally identical. But like, see, this there's no is, physical test you could ever but run. But this, this is why theoretically. The, the sports card market fell apart, actually, because what happened, and I was listening to a podcast about this the other day because they were talking about this exact thing. But one of the problems that happened is like in the 80s, sports cards were a minor thing. They weren't particularly big. But in the 90s, all of these company, all of these card companies got really greedy and they said, well, why don't we just make a ton of cards? Right. 
And so before in the, you know, in, you know, years before there was a limited quantity of these cards, right. Uh, of Michael Jordan rookie cards or the whole set or whatever. And that made them valuable. But in the nineties, they just flooded the market with so much crap that cards overall as an industry lost their value. Right. Yeah. So yeah. again, if you created these replica cards of whatever it is that you wanted to and flooded the market with it, where there was no way to tell the difference again, cards would lose all of their value. Right. Yep. Because yeah, the yeah. thing that makes them valuable is their rarity. Right. Yep. If all of a the sudden there was four times as much gold on earth now as the, as there was yesterday, then gold would become less valuable, right? Because people would say, oh, it's not as rare or blah, 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 right? So sometimes it's the, the rarity, the fact that uh, something isn't readily available or available to everyone. Um, and I think that's the idea is, yes, everyone can have little videos or everyone has a, you know, a screen capture of the first tweet, but you are technically the only one owner, right? Uh, of this thing that's it's recorded again in blockchain and it allows you for me now maybe i'm just a little bit old school because <laughs> if i'm collecting something and let me just say this i've always said if you like the mona lisa right you don't need to buy the freaking mona lisa one you can't but two it just you don't there's no reason to spend a hundred million dollars on a painting just buy a nice copy and put it on your wall i'm looking mm -hmm. at a, a painting it's definitely not a uh, a Da Vinci or anything. It looks like maybe a terrible knockoff of something. But anyway, I'm looking at it now. If I wanted the Mona Lisa there, then you could just put the Mona Lisa there. If you like the way it looked, there's no reason to have the original, right? But that said, the original is worth some value or worth some money because uh, the artist is dead. It's very old, all of these other kinds of things. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I'm very curious uh, as to what the future of this is. If you can basically take any digital creation and create a collectible out of it, right? Um, and sell it to people. That's an interesting new economy that you're kind of creating on the side. Mm -hmm. Digital, uh, digital art is, you know, another thing, essentially. Um, I've also read about some designers creating dresses and clothes that will never actually be made, but that will be put on an, a likeness of yourself and that you can share on Instagram and whatever else uh, for, for a very steep price. So you'll never actually wear the dress, but you'll have photos of you in the dress. Yeah, things like that. The idea well, I'm not that sure can, I'm gonna have photos of me in that dress, but you know, maybe- Well, you maybe, you never know. I, I don't know what you're into <laughs> these days. Uh, well, and just to, uh, maybe this will be a good segue, but just to- uh uh take that to the extreme like what i was already talking about is that you can imagine a future it, say we have some crazy advanced kind of alien level technology although uh, the way technology progressing on earth I, I think we could reach that level is uh again if you can copy the mona lisa uh like literally uh, bit for bit as in like atom for atom then if you hang that copy on your wall it's it's indistinguishable from the original and so if you if you claim, oh, I stole the Mona Lisa, they'd have no way of knowing. Did you get make a copy or did you steal the original? It's a meaningless question at that point because it's like literally an exact molecular level copy. So uh, there's no there's there's no way to ever know which one is the original. It's not like literally there's no test you could do because uh, they're exact copies. So the point being, if we ever got to that level, 
then the only uh the only like uh things you could distinguish as original would be digital objects so actually the physical objects would no longer be uh unique uh but the digital objects could be because of like advanced cryptography or other like ways to to certify them uh you know digitally uh this gets more complicated too with quantum computing because there's way you can you can defeat cryptography and stuff there's ways you can break blockchains with quantum computing so uh, anyways it's probably too early to say but in theory we can move to a point where the physical world uh counterfeiting gets better and better even if it's not an exact molecular copy but it, sure. it just gets really good really good well and again and so another the content supply can go up and the demand comes down but the 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 tokens, the digital tokens might be the only thing you can really trust. You know, I, I think right. that's quite possible. Like so this is another, another content recommendation um, is uh, murder amongst the Mormons, which is a I watched Netflix. That. I watched that. Yeah. yeah. The way that's that a nice that twist guy, to it. It's got a nice twist to it. It's yeah. And the was. way that that guy was able. Uh, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Do, anyways, I, if I did, anyone's I didn't listening. Say, I didn't, I didn't say. Okay. It was able to do what he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that is very much related to what we're just talking about. It is, uh, yeah. Of course, this this was 30 years ago, 35 yeah. years ago. So now the technology is much more advanced. And yeah, I think you'll get to that point. Um, I mean, I think that's the promise that quote unquote blockchain holds, right? Is that it's something even more so than the real world where it can be difficult to see the difference in something. If you have a technology that's essentially unhackable uh, and, you know, who knows if that's an actual real thing, unhackable, but unchangeable in a way. Um, so, that, you know, only one person can be the quote unquote registered owner of something. Then maybe that's the the next kind of way to collect something, to be something, to have something. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because it's unchangeable, whereas like uh, works of art and other and you know what? It's just a question of actually minimalism, right? Getting away from the idea of collecting loads and loads of things. Yeah. Um, like physical, tangible things and getting into more of a digital existence anyway. And why not digital collectibles? It was, it's an interesting, uh, lots of interesting ideas and whatnot. Um, one of the things, and, and this is also on my list. And so I'll ask you about this before we get to your topic. I read all of, I've been reading all of these stories about it from the social media side, from the, you know, Jack Dorsey's tweet, from crypto art, from all these other things. What it got me to feel was that actually, from an economic perspective, I'm pretty optimistic about where the world is. Now, of course, this pandemic has been terrible. We've talked about that, you know, uh, all, you know before, uh, off the pod, you know, it's obviously been harder on, a, on a, some people than others. I, I think for sure that there's people who have been really heavily hurt, hit by this, especially people who've lost their lives. You talked about some of your uh, family members who have passed. Um, but in terms of the economic perspective, the fact that you have a great deal of the kind of uh, middle class or upper middle class and above um, that have just really been sitting on a lot of money and now are spending money on things like NFTs. Uh, you see that, the, I mean, a lot of, uh, products, consumer products companies are actually doing quite well. I'm wondering what you think about, like, where are you in terms of, we also just, they just passed a new stimulus in the U.S. I don't know if you've gotten your check yet, if you've gone out nope, and bought some, got, bought some beers with it or what you're going to do with it. But um, 
where do you stand, one, on the economic situation, whether it's in the U.S. or the world? And, and two, what do you think about this, uh, this second stimulus that they just passed? So uh, start with the global level and then go to U.S. Uh, global level, I think, like, we'll probably see uh, a decent pickup this year. I think there are going to be certain sectors that are impacted a lot longer than people expect. So uh, a good example is aviation, because I think corporate travel and um, some other things like that, we're going to see that, um, as you and I have talked about before, uh there are certain like situations in life where it's like, okay, we have to go one month without this. And so like, uh, you know, I don't know a good example. Say, say you're, you're a normal, typical family. They're like, we're going to go a, a month without meat. Okay. Uh, we're not going to eat meat for a month, you know, like a normal American family. And you're like, okay, okay, okay. We do it. You can do it. Okay. But uh, by the end of the month, probably, the son or the daughter in the family, or whatever is like, let's have some hamburger or some chicken nuggets, you know, like let's get our tendies on and uh, 3d printed chicken nuggets. From exactly. Russia. And so you're going to, you're going to go back. You're going to, that demand is going to bounce back after the month. Right. But if someone's like, let's not eat meat for a year and a half or two years. Uh, some people are going to go back to eating meat, but there might be other people that are like, you know what? Like my doctor says I'm healthier than ever. I got good cholesterol levels. I feel fine. Don't really need to eat meat. Like uh, I never knew that, but now I know that I don't really need it. And so I think uh, there are certain sectors that are going to be like that. Like, uh, as I mentioned, business travel is a good example where a lot of companies are spending a lot of money on flying people around business class and stuff. And they've survived pretty fine for 18 months. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it's been about 12 months now, but they will have survived 18 months or more without business travel. And I think they're, you know, in businesses in particular, you got to justify the expense. So it's like, it's not just a question of what do you prefer? It's like, well, one option is way more expensive than the other. Right. So it's like, how are you, you know, meat costs a lot more than beans. So it's like, even if you want to go back, if you have a tight budget, we did fine on just beans. So it's like, Maybe we don't need to buy the meat, you know, uh, or maybe once in a while we'll buy meats like a couple times a month. You know, it doesn't have to be every day. We'll do meat, meat Saturdays or whatever, you know, where our family has chicken or beef on Saturdays. But the rest of the week, we're not going to do that because we save a lot of money. And two years ago, that was probably unthinkable. But now for a lot of people, that's uh, something you could do. And of course, I'm not talking about meat itself. I'm talking about a variety of things like going to a movie theater. Well, maybe we just watch Netflix, you know. It's like, do we really mm-hmm. need the theater? I don't know. We could wait a couple months till that movie comes out on streaming or whatever. And uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of those things where there's real substitution that's kind of permanent or semi-permanent. It's not that you're going to see a bounce back. So definitely we're going to see some of it, the demand come back like an air travel. But I don't think it's going to go back immediately, maybe ever to the level it was like two years ago. You know, no, but so. I, I think that's a question of efficiency, right? Like there was a lot of inefficiencies with, I would say, with work as well. Right. The idea that, that um, and actually this is on my list uh, randomly, but like the ways of working, the idea that you had to spend eight hours a day, five days a week or nine hours a day, five days a week physically in an office. It's pretty antiquated and pretty silly, if you ask me. And now I'm not saying you need to go to four days a week or that uh, I read an article about another company that went to five hour work days. Like, I'm not saying you need to do any of that. Um, every company is going to make their own choice. But the pandemic in that way has made people rethink what is efficient and effective. Right. And I think that's 
that's a market correction. It's not like a, um, you know, a recession, a depression of some kind, right? You're not, people are not refusing to go out and buy things and really searching for jobs and, and not being able to be part of the market because of a down economy or anything like that. It, that's more of a, wait, we've been doing something for 20 years or 50 years or 100 years. Maybe we weren't doing it the right way. Right. Maybe actually, as you said, not eating meat or maybe paying a hundred dollars for my gym membership was stupid when I can pay ten dollars to the guy on YouTube and get all of the, you know, you pay twenty dollars a month of Peloton. Yeah, you got to pay the two thousand dollars for the bike. <laughs> yeah, but you uh, amortize that cost. Run the numbers, man. They give hundred dollars a month as a fast you know what i mean no no no. yeah uh, well so it's like uh, in two years it, you will have paid it that, off and there's so, actually there's actually uh kind of uh low-grade versions of peloton where you basically get your own bike uh and you know you basically again just put your ipad in front of you if you really want someone to to push you yet now it's not as technologically advanced maybe as the peloton bike but whatever you can do all kinds of ways to rig it to your particular budget i think again those are efficiencies right in the market uh inefficiencies in the market that are correcting themselves um but i I do think you're right some people will be hesitant to go back out into the market the way that they were before whether it's spending traveling other things behavioral it's behavioral changes and uh behavioral changes uh like any behavior man we all know this like whether it's you want to uh get up earlier every day or you want to exercise more or you want to eat better or you want to like you know i mean name any behavior that like people some like try to correct uh, during their new year's resolutions right uh one month is not enough for that to stick so but 18 months is enough that like you have permanent changes in behaviors so like people who have gotten used to a new style of living after that amount of time uh some of them are gonna go back some of them are going to partly go back and that's fine. And some of them are not going to go back to their old lifestyle, you know? So like there are some uh, permanent changes, I think in the way society functions and in each country is a little different, you know, there's been different levels of lockdown, et cetera. But I think like the, the idea that we're all going back to 2019 uh, is really naive. I don't think we're ever going back to 2019. Uh, this is like pretty fundamental change, just like there have been other fundamental changes in society, like when women entered the workforce, you know, during World War II, because all the men were away, and you're like, well, women have to man the factories, so okay, we're going to allow that, we're going to hire a lot of women. But then the idea that all the women are just going to go back to the home now after the war, well, that never really happened. You know what I mean? It's like uh, once you've kind of adopted this new style of uh, society, it, it like, some women probably went back to the home and you know, their husbands came back and they did that. But other women were like, I actually kind of like this. Like I like earning money on my own and I like being independent. And so they continued doing what they were doing. So I think, uh, yeah, there's a lot of permanent changes that uh, we're only just beginning to understand. It's going to impact a lot of things. Travel is an obvious one. Uh, we're still going to be able to, like, we're going to be able to travel freely again, but I just think the level of travel there's not going to be a lot of like mandatory travel. We used to have people like, especially in the U.S., and we had movies about this. Like, did you see that George Clooney movie Up in the Air? Mm-hmm. There are people in the U.S. who had to travel like almost every day, and they hated doing it. They didn't even enjoy it. You know what I mean? So 
it's like they don't even want to do it. And their companies no, were absolutely. like, we have to spend all this money, like crazy amounts of money. We're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, probably for a business traveler to travel around the U.S. and stay in hotels and flights and et cetera. And the, even the employee doesn't even want to do it. So it's like the employee doesn't want to do it. The business doesn't want to pay for it. They only did it because they thought this was the only way you could do it. You have to do this. Uh, but if there, if now there's an alternative, like, okay, it's not perfect. Like Zoom meetings are not as good as in-person meetings, but it's like, can we do, you know, uh, say you have some client and typically you would have seen like once a week as a consultant, you got to fly out to whatever city. Can you be like, okay, three times a month, we're going to do a Zoom meeting. And then one time a month, I'll come and meet you guys and we'll have beers afterward or whatever, uh, you know, and go out for dinner. Well, you just saved like 75% of the money, you know, so you can find some hybrid is what I would say that, you know, is still pretty effective. And uh, Absolutely. I think we're going to see a lot of these behavioral changes. It doesn't have to be one way or the other, but it's like, uh, there's going to be a lot of these, I think, where. Well, I think, I think one works. thing that you're going to see, and I've talked to it now, I think some companies will institute rules uh, about different things, but I think one thing you're going to see a lot of, is there will be people that want to go back to the office almost fully. There will be people who want to stay home almost fully. And there will be people that want to have hybrid situations. Yeah, I think what you're going to see in terms of the ways of work of the future, and this makes the most sense. Again, if you had asked me about this two years ago before COVID, I would have told you something probably relatively similar, which is you can't fit every white collar worker in any kind of box, right? Everyone yep. has, and not to mention, no one person should be in that box like eternally because your home life will change, your, uh, your work life will change, your emotions will change. You need to be able to fit your work style to whatever is suitable to you at that given point in time. And if that means choosing every month or every quarter or every year, or whatever it may be, I think the best companies around the world will ultimately kind of become much more adaptable and flexible for various types of people working in teams. And maybe, you know, okay, if you want to be on this team, here's the work style you need. But if you want to be on this team, here's the work style. I'm not sure how it's all going to work. It's mm -hmm. going to be a logistical clusterfuck for better of a, of a term, because I've, every, every company is going to, if you want to attract the top talent, you're going to need to suit your company to that top talent. And then it's going to kind of start flowing as it always does down from there. Right. Yeah. But dude, uh, just to, uh, sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, to interrupt again, but just, just, um, as we've seen in a lot of different industries, like, uh, uh, what you're saying, I mean, so there's the aspect where it's a clusterfuck because each team is a little bit different and then each person seeking a job is different. I mean, you can imagine situations where someone is like really good at what they do. Uh, and they can earn a lot of money per hour because I mean, I've seen this in business. Like, uh, there are certain specialties where like really two hours of one person's time per month is worth almost like a full-time employee. Cause they can cut through the bullshit. They can like really understand it, whether it's a lawyer or someone who's a really highly trained professional. And then just kind of in a couple hours, really get to the bottom of the issue and contribute a lot in just a few hours. Right. Uh, and so, uh, but the point I wanted to make is, yeah, each team might be different because it's like the teams agree, you know, the boss is like, I want to work four days a week, but I want these people in here on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh, so we at least have some face-to-face -face time because uh, we know empirically that face-to-face -face time is more productive uh, for team 
coordination than Zoom or anything. Like video chat is actually not very good for team coordination. But but when you have individual jobs, like you're a programmer, and so you got to coordinate with other people, but most of what you're doing is on your own. You can do a lot of individual work, and that's fine. Or say you're a journalist or something, it's like most of what you're doing is on your own, but then you got to interact with the editor a little bit. You could do one day a week in the office, so you're probably fine. Uh, a lot of these jobs are out in the field anyways or whatever. Uh, sales rep is another good example. You don't really spend much time in the office anyways, uh, historically. So, but I, I do think there'll be a time when, okay, you do have a lot of different jobs that have different time constraints. And then you have potential employees who have their own kind of preferences. And this is a natural thing. So like the solution to which would be you set up a marketplace online where you can search by parameters. Like say you're- Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, That's I want to be. I want to. I want to work, and I'm an employee. I'm mobile, so let me search for all the jobs in the world that need someone who can like edit English from you know 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and you could be any of the worlds, you know. But you put in those parameters, and it pops up like 10 vacancies, and uh, you're like, yeah. I could do any of those, you know. And so you can imagine how that kind of what it would even look like as like a web interface, you know, you can imagine. Absolutely. And you, Uh, I I think there's a lot of different arrangements. If you have digital tools to match the people, the skills to the people that need the skills, I think like we have the digital tools that can do that. It's not like it used to be where it's just the guy you recommend your friend down the street who can drive to work in 20 (laughs) minutes and he'll work in a, you know, a nine to five job for the next 30 years. Like we don't need that anymore. We have much more sophisticated ways of matching talent to the organizations that need that talent. And uh, I think you can do it in a way that would make not for everyone win-win, but for a lot of people, uh, maybe I only want to work, you know, 10 hours a week, but I have some pretty unique skills. I'm a programmer who knows like some obscure language that certain financial institutions use. And they'd be like, we're willing to pay you this amount to work these hours for 10 hours a week. And they're like, yeah, it's like a bidding system, almost like an auction system, you know, like an eBay or something. Yeah. No, I, I think there's potential there. And actually one of the things that probably needs to be addressed in that regard is, uh, and I've read this before that uh, as companies start ramping back up, they're going to look to more short-term kind of temporary workers, right? Freelancers in a way as opposed to fill the skills gaps that they have in their teams, uh, you know, as a result of different uh, things. So I, I think that's abs- what you just described. I think it's absolutely going to be part of the future of work. The question yeah. is how, kind of how do they get there, right? It's not, it's not technologically difficult by any stretch of the imagination. The question will be when and how do companies start to move in that direction, right? Towards being much more flexible, towards but, like you said, an interface that. But works I mean, out. I think we we already have it. Like this, you know, it's the gig economy. Like Uber is the classic example, sure. right? Of, uh, but I think the problem there is you do need some kind of regulation, because the regulations we have on work were developed in the you know uh, mid twentieth century, whether it's Europe or the U.S. Uh, to uh, govern the kind of uh, systems that we had at that time. Okay. And I think there are a lot of areas of law that are now outdated, like uh, publisher law is outdated. I think we talked about this before, where you used to have either free speech between individuals, like I talk to you, 
and uh, that's totally unregulated. It's just free speech. Although you can't yell fire in a crowded movie theater, obviously, but free speech between individuals is unregulated. But then uh, publishing is regulated. Like publishers can be sued for defamation, et cetera. So, cause you produce like 10 million copies of some book. And if you say something bad about someone that's not true, the publisher can be sued. And so, and this is what Donald Trump picked up on. He's like, Twitter shouldn't have this whatever uh, whatever is section two thirty or whatever. I don't even know what's called yeah. but it's these publisher protections and it's like that's because we have two systems uh, in the U S one is like First Amendment free speech the individual literally what you speak out of your mouth or you sign language or whatever however you speak as an individual and then the second is these publishers the mass media uh, but the thing is now we have some weird technological hybrid of the two and so to me it's obvious you need some new regulatory approach like it's not a question of the problem i think a lot of times we get into is they want to say the courts are like should we decide is this either free speech or is it publishing you know like is twitter a publisher because you can you click submit your tweet and now it can reach millions of people so you're kind of a publisher but on the other hand there's like you know half a billion people on the platform and so no traditional publisher ever had half a billion people publishing material. So it's more like individual speech. And, and I think a lot of times the, the courts are cut up in this, which one do we classify it as when the obvious like reality is it's neither of the two, it's some new form, just like publishing didn't used to exist. It came across, you know, it came about as a result of the printing press, et cetera. Uh, back in the medieval period, there were manuscripts, people copy shit by hand. Uh, and so, there was no publishing. And so you have to invent new laws to deal with like the situation on the ground. And uh, I think the work situation that we were just talking about is similar to that where there's this weird dichotomy between you're either your full-time employee or you're a contractor. And uh, in Europe, they just had this case about uh, in the UK, I think about our Uber drivers, employees, are they contractors? Okay. And, uh, like in my mind, it's clear it's neither. It's some kind of weird hybrid. Like uh, you need, you can't, the court shouldn't be deciding is it one or the other. I mean, I guess that's their purview as the court because that's the existing laws. So like they have sure. to the buckets. But some of these people should be really be standing up and be like, we need a better regulatory framework because we have new like kind of types of jobs and they should have more protections than your classic contractor who's working with like, you know, 10 different companies. I mean, you can imagine like your, con your classic contractor is like brought on for a single job to fulfill that job. Say you're an engineer. Okay. Or an architect architects, a great example. Uh, and you contract for a job and it lasts like three months, but you're probably doing a couple jobs at the same time. And so you're kind of a contractor. You, you have your own sole proprietorship, or maybe you have an LLC or something, but you're doing a couple jobs or maybe even just one job you're really focusing on and then you move on to the next job right but you have people who are working on uh so you're a contractor because you don't have a stable you're not working for a single legal entity like a legal corporation for very long you know you're like moving around you have reputations people recommend you and then you go to work on this and then six months later you work on another project you're building like a house but then you build a doctor's office and anyways that's like classic uh, contractor thing you know for professional but uh, uh, you now have people that are like, they're contractors, but they're kind of working for like five years only for Uber. That's the only stream of income. So it's like, how are you a contractor? Because that's all you do. And you only get paid 
for the amount you work. So basically now you're a wage laborer, you know, that's what we call it. You get paid for the hours you work. And so uh, there's that, but then you have other people that actually do do Uber as a part-time thing. So they have their own job, but then maybe on the weekends they do a little bit of Uber. So are they really like a, a wage laborer for Uber or are they just kind of some kind of contractor? Anyways, I think the, basically what I'm saying, you know, the, to bring it, full circle is uh, a lot of these legal concepts we have are not equipped to deal with the realities of the digital age. And so the real, um, if we want to actually tackle those problems, it's got to be through a recognizing that, that, that we are going through a period of like rapid technological change that is having profound impacts on society. I think that's like number one. A lot of people don't recognize that, but I think we're right now, I think we're going through personally, we're going through a period that's no less, uh, radically shift like shifting nature of society than like the invention of the printing press the enlightenment i think it's actually probably more right now more rapid i would say uh, more and um, uh, i and mean a lot of people don't recognize that they think we're kind of still just chugging along in the 90s or whatever it's like no we are rapidly changing what it means to be a worker what it means to be a uh i don't you know, think a friend what it means a to be shift. a family member etc i don't think you've seen a shift in human history from i mean even if you just think the ideas of capitalism and work have only been around for a couple of hundred years, right? A few hundred years. Um, five, five, the, 600, if you're generous. Yeah. For capitalism. Yeah. Um, in terms of the way that just life in general, what we think about some of the most fundamental core tenets of existence have changed um, so much in the last 10 or 20 years, right? From the time that I was, uh, again, let's say just, a, uh, you know, in the 80s or the early 90s to now, things have so fundamentally changed in terms of the technology, the way that you can go about. I mean, I'm talking you, to you now, right, from Istanbul. We're doing a podcast, which is quite easy for a just average Joe who's not very good with technology to record and then produce uh, and put up for whoever in the heck is crazy enough to actually listen to me and you talk for an hour and a half or two hours or however long we're going to go tonight. Like if you had told me any of this would be possible uh, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, I would have called you crazy. Right. Um, the, the shift that we're seeing, I think, is pretty fundamental. And I think you're right that a lot of people don't understand the vastness, the seriousness of it. Um, and that's why, actually, I would say with and I started this kind of question by asking about the, your your optimism with relation to the economy. I'm optimistic now. I'm always optimistic when it comes to the trajectory of humanity. But I am relatively optimistic when it comes to technology and all of these other things, because it's all so new. Right. We are complaining that, like, you know, screen time and social media and partisanship and all of these things are tearing us apart. But so much of what we're dealing with is so, so new that we, you have to give at least a generation, maybe two, to understand some of the things that we're putting out there and putting together, right? Uh, of course, when you're changing how people work, it's not going to happen overnight. You're trying to convince companies of 10, 15, 50, 100,000 people to change the way they've done business for 25 or 50 years. You're trying to convince people who always believed, I still think it's funny, and I have friends that are my age and younger, when you talk about work, and even linguistically, when you use the word work, it has kind of a negative connotation. 
they think you're not supposed to like your job. And I think that's insane. Um, but hey, that's the idea. I right? got a question for you. What do you know the Russian word for work? Uh, I'm, I'm not sure why. Uh, Rabota. Yeah, 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 yeah. Robota, okay. Which is the root for robot in English. It's the same root. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't want to be a robot, right? Yeah. Uh, it's but, actually a Czech science fiction writer who came up with the term for robot. Really? We barred it into English. I forget the guy's name. Yeah, we barred it into English, but it comes from the Slavic word for work. Yeah. So robot. Czech Republic just found out it is a green country now for America. Uh, nice little segue to another topic I wanted to ask you about, which we were talking about briefly before we started the pod. Um, I just saw that in the last couple of days, you know, I use Skyscanner to book flights from time to time. They've got a really great interactive map that allows people to see you're coming from one place and going to another. What are the restrictions? So you got green, yellow, and red, right? And uh, Czech Republic was one of the places that recently for Americans turned green, Ukraine being another. Um, what of switching from your economic world optimism to your border opening optimism? One of the things I did like recently that I read was about like the, the idea of the kind of roaring 20s, the, the crazy 2021 summer where people will be free again. I don't know that it's going to be that, but how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the summer, uh, the fun that can be had, and perhaps the opening up of countries, or are you entirely pessimistic? Yeah, so first I just want to say that uh we got to get to my topic dude like when are we get are we gonna do a joe five, rogan five, hour, five, yeah five hour. minutes on this and then we'll switch over to your dude i'm uh, game to do like a two-hour podcast if you're cool with that uh why not <laughs> well, we'll do if joe people rogan are crazy stuff. enough to listen to us uh yeah, dude, this why long, not? then why not why then not? uh why not yeah, yeah. so yeah. All okay right. anyways we'll get to it i promise all right but uh yeah my my gut feeling i mean you can uh you you're traveling more and uh, following this more than I am, but my gut feeling is uh, like, I guess, yeah, the, you know, the way I think about it is like the uh, travel restrictions were imposed all a year ago, basically uh, very rapidly when it became clear the magnitude of the problem. Okay. With COVID that is to say, it's a, it's a new virus that causes pneumonia and a lot of people are going to die. And uh, you, you know, a lot of people can debate whether or not the lockdowns are worth it and stuff. And that's a valid, that's a valid debate because the lockdowns have a human cost, but there's no denying that a lot of people have died from COVID. I mean, worldwide, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of people probably ultimately who have died from the disease. So, uh, you know, I understand why they want to lock stuff down. Uh, at the same time, uh, now that we've gone through a year of it, and uh, and I guess the biggest conclusion, and this is going to sound pessimistic, and it kind of is, I guess, is the lockdowns basically failed, like most places, as in to say they didn't stop the spread of the disease, right? Mm -hmm. So the reason you quarantine like your country, as in you stop people from coming, is it's like we're just going to cut it off at the source, 
and we're not going to say Australia, Australia and New Zealand have done a yeah. pretty good job. There are exceptions to that. South Korea right. is another good exception. Taiwan, yeah. although they've, it's been picking up there too. So yeah, they're uh, yeah. I don't want to like give a blanket response. I agree with but, you, but yeah, you're, but you're right. But you're if right. You're a weird Island nation and you have like a really good response and you kind of isolate the cases and all that. Yes, there are some exceptions, but on the whole, uh, the world did not stop the spread of this. This became a global, uh, what you call endemic disease. It's not pandemic, it's endemic as in, uh, I think COVID-19 will be around 50 years from now. People will be getting sick and dying from COVID-19 50 years from now. I think that's clear, like at this point, because you're not getting rid of it. A lot of people are going to be vaccinated, but you're never going to get 100%. So like, it's still going to be floating around, especially in less developed countries, et cetera. And uh, just like a lot of diseases, it's just going to be there, like kind of uh, churning around the background, like the flu and stuff uh, and killing people. Like uh, if you happen to get a bad case and you have a weak immune system or maybe a strong immune system because you get a over response and all that uh, cytokine storm, like because the, the way the virus works. Anyways, point being, I think the travel uh, restrictions made sense a year ago, but they failed. Like they basically failed with few exceptions. Uh, so the, the virus became global. And so now the travel restrictions don't really make sense because it's not like there are all these pristine countries. The U S is a great example of this. Like there's they still like politicians calling for travel bans into the U S cause they're like, uh, the immigrants have COVID. It's like, well, like, so do a lot of Americans, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's not like the, there's no COVID in America, like COVID sure. everywhere in America and the numbers have come down, thankfully. But, uh, I mean, the U S is over 500,000 deaths from COVID and, uh, officially, I think the, uh, I haven't seen the census data. Maybe we won't know for a while, but, uh, I think the actual death toll is probably like double that maybe. Um, although some of that is because of lack of medical care of people, maybe you have a heart attack, but you don't have the hospital because, you know, you, you don't want to go or it's overwhelmed or, or, you know, it just gets more complicated during times of isolation. There's more mental illness and et cetera. It's hard to know, man. But uh, point being, I think the travel bans don't make a lot of sense anymore. So I think any smart countries, uh, especially ones that rely on tourism, uh, and you can look up the list from 2019, who, which are the countries that earn the highest percentage of GDP from tourism? It's places like France, uh, Vietnam, or Thailand, uh you know, you, you can like Italy is also big. So I think those countries are going to be like, we want tourists to come back because uh, there's been a huge economic negative impact and they're going to be pushing for uh, let's just open it or at the very least, anyone who's been vaccinated or is a test that shows antibodies. And I think they will be pretty wide with that. I don't think there's gonna be a lot of like, Oh, you had this vaccine, but you didn't have that vaccine. Like, Oh, you had the Russian vaccine, but that's not good enough for us. It's like, no, the data is pretty good. The WHO has endorsed these vaccines. And uh, actually, the least effective vaccines are probably the Chinese vaccines from what we've seen so far, the actual data. Mm-hmm. But even those are pretty good. Uh, they're still like 70% effective. So I think like, you know, uh, my gut feeling is like, there's going to be a lot more travel, but we're not, we're not going back to 2019. I don't believe there's going to be a surge like, uh, I don't think we're going to have more travel now than we did in 2019. I think there's no way. It might be like 50% of that level or something like that globally. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's, 
I think that makes sense. Um, for sure, it's not going to ever get back to that particular place. Oh, it um, might eventually. I would say it might eventually, but not, yeah. not this well, year. Not year. Maybe next yeah. year or the year after, you know, but like not right away. It's going to be a gradual ramp up is the way I'd put it. Yeah. Um, no, I that that absolutely, I would say, makes sense. Yeah. Um, I'm pessimistic as you are i would say about actually uh getting getting things opened up back for this summer um i think the fall maybe we're going to see a little bit more opening up i mean who knows right now with what's happening in europe um you know i think i don't know if anything as people became more and more optimistic i became more and more pessimistic uh just because i i think the last year has taught me that people kind of are thrusting themselves into this optimism without really knowing or having a reason like a solid footing or backing behind why they're being optimistic. I think if anything, uh, there's a reason to actually be a little bit more pessimistic when it comes to some of the stuff. Um, mm. I, th I think some countries will remain open and I think they will. I agree with you as well. And one of the things you said at the beginning of, of that, I, I totally agree with in that, I don't think it's necessary for countries to be closed right now. Right. Yeah. Um, we, I think I, we passed that point, but there's always that institutional momentum where you know how it works, man. Any country has their institutions. They have their ministry of the border control and ministry of, uh, you know, whatever uh, international relations. And once they start putting in place blocks and policies uh, it, it, it's not easy to remove those actually. It's like uh, they really have to go out of their way to like kind of, it takes a lot of institutional energy and kind of push to get rid of those. So like once they're yeah. in place, the natural momentum is just to keep them, you know, that's the natural kind of thing in any country. The natural thing is like to just preserve these, the system we have. And so once you have those blocks in place, it's like, especially cause there's no debt, there's no natural expiration. There's no uh, sunset kind of clause. So they just uh it's very hard to get those removed now that we've had them unfortunately uh i think yeah. several years before all of them go away um yeah i think that's true um all right my friend well let's get to your topic of all topics uh which is something you know about and i have no idea about so you're going to have to lead the way lead the discussion i'm gonna listen and i'm going to try and uh, chime in whenever it is that I can, and uh, I will play the role of listener and student. And tell me what you know about, uh, or what you've learned recently about ancient DNA. Yeah. So the reason I, I thought this would be a good topic to talk about, just to start at that level, is um, I think like a lot of scientific disciplines. Okay, uh, they advance in kind of uh, spurts and starts, like. It's not um, it's not uniform. Uh, and like the most, you know, I've studied history of science. The most uh, famous example of this would be uh, physics in the early 20th century that had some crazy advancements like uh, in a 20 year period. Like a lot of people don't know this, but uh, it wasn't even proven that atoms existed at, in 1900. Like that was still a mm. thing that a lot of scientists disagreed with, like prominent scientists. I'd say like half the scientific community was not convinced that atoms existed in 1900 or in 1890, certainly. And uh, so uh, Einstein had three famous papers 
in uh, 1905. It was called his uh, Honest Mirabilis, his miraculous year. He was 25, I think. And uh, same age as Newton when he wrote a lot of his stuff, uh, you know, 300 years or so before. And uh, uh, But Einstein's, uh, the one he won the Nobel Prize for was uh, what's called Brownian motion, which is when little things under a microscope get bounced around and he kind of analyzed the pat- patterns of that and uh statistically you can see that like that random motion is probably due to little like balls or this is crazy oversimplification but little balls bouncing around and so he deduced the size of it and they're like oh these are probably atoms you know uh, which the chemists chemists for many years have been talking about they're probably atoms because they combine in certain ratios we have chemical reactions and we, we think there's probably something like that but the physicists hadn't bought onto so anyways there was a period uh, in, in physics of like rapid advancements. Uh, I'm totally digressing as usual. No, that's all right. Totally digressing. Keep going. In the early 20th century. And uh, and then Einstein had some other papers on relativity, which is probably what he's more famous for. But at the time, what he won the Nobel Prize for was this like uh, discovery of the atom, or at least the proving that the atoms exist. And so the point being that there was a, and then a lot of other people jumped in uh, into and developed quantum mechanics and relativity. And uh there was a period of rapid advancement of physics, like 20 years. And then since then, since like 1925, like really uh, physics has not changed much. Like there's been very few discoveries. Uh, it's been refined. There have been discoveries. Don't get me wrong, but nothing that's, none of those theories have been disproven. Like everything they discovered, quantum mechanics and relativity uh, still holds today. They're like no changes really to uh, I mean, refinement, but no, uh, they haven't been overthrown or anything like that. So science often develops in these like periods of rapid developments uh, where things are stagnant for a while. Uh, and there was a famous quote, uh, I think it was by Rutherford, that uh, physics had basically been solved. And that was before all this, what I was just talking about. So in like the 1880s, it was like, yeah, the physics is basically done. We're done. We solved it all. <laughs> uh, it might have been Lord Kelvin, no, so that I forget. But no it's like, more you know, questions. We're good. Yeah, yeah. We basically solved it all. There's nothing left, so it's like a boring science now. And then there was this revolution. So, point being that in our lifetimes, I I always get interested when there's some like crazy stuff. And there have been a couple examples where like a certain subset of science has gone through some really drastic change, and it's uh, they're different subsets of science. Like it's uh, you know, uh, and you got to pay attention when one of those uh segments of science going through that change i think it's just interesting like any lay person should be getting into that because like there's just some really cool stuff going on and maybe you can't understand all of it but like uh the magnitude of the change is really interesting to pay attention to and uh i give other examples like cosmology is one of the 1990s where a lot was discovered by the big bang and stuff but the recent one that i want to talk about today is uh what's called ancient dna or paleogenetics, uh, which really started uh, in 2010 or so, 2009, mm-hmm. and is continuing to today. Probably, actually, we're already past the peak of the discovery phase because a lot of the, I think, most interesting things have probably already been resolved. And uh, again, I'm not an expert, but I've been following it for several years now. I think it's really cool and stuff that people should be aware of. Uh, so the the broad story is that. Uh, you know, I think most people are familiar that uh, DNA, the building blocks of life that codes, uh, uh, you know, in each cell, uh, each individual has a certain DNA and then it, it, 
you know, in your cells, you have that DNA pattern and it codes for the proteins. Um, uh, you have certain genes that code for proteins and enzymes that then do a lot of things and like have a huge impact on you as an organism, right? Uh, they define like, not fully defined. There's always this uh, nurture, nature versus nurture debate, but the nature aspect of your life, a lot of it is defined by your DNA, like at birth. When you were a single cell at one point, uh, when you know, uh, um, you know, your mom had an egg, your dad donated the sperm, and like, uh, and then you that little. <laughs> Thank you for the egg. birds and the beans. Yeah, yeah. Although identical twins are a little different because actually it was the same sperm, and then it split, and then they both developed from that. Like there were two cells that had one sperm and then, you know, so for identical twins, it's a little different. And, uh, but, uh, for the rest of us, yeah, it's like you, you were the result of a sperm and, uh, a egg. And, uh, uh, anyways, you know, around 20 years ago, we sequenced the first, uh, human genomes, uh, a little bit more than that now, 20, I don't know, 22, 23 years ago or around 20 years ago. Uh, and, uh, understood, kind of uh started to understand how the sequence in the dna relates to like specific things so we've known about dna since the 50s that was like francis crick and james watson very famously and rosalind franklin uh and uh so it's been known for a long time but it wasn't until 20 years ago that people could start sequencing the dna and like trying to draw conclusions okay well different people have different dna and uh, so what do those differences mean? Like, what does the difference in your DNA mean uh, for who you are as a person? And so that science has advanced a lot now where anyone can get their DNA sequenced for like hundreds of dollars. It used to cost, I mean, the first person who got DNA sequence was like, it was, I don't know, like tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, so a lot of really? which was, yeah, a lot of the human genome project, that original project was carried out in Houston, by the way, like a third or half of the sequencing was on in the Houston medical center, Texas. Anyways, but, uh, uh, there, you know, and so that, that started a whole chain reaction of, okay, let's sequence different people. Uh, and there were several projects to do this. Like let's sequence different people in different parts of the world and kind of like try to understand how they relate to each other. You can do statistical analysis, right. To understand how do these different people relate to each other and like, we already had theories about how people relate to each other based off language or culture or history. Cause we recorded that like certain people immigrated to certain places and, or they have languages that seem similar. So we, even if we don't have histories like prehistory, they didn't have writing, but we think probably these people related. And so then you start, you know, try to fill in the gaps by doing this DNA analysis. Right. And uh, there are a lot of interesting things that came out of that. Uh, and one that like, just by what, you know, listening to some things recently, I learned like, uh, for instance, I'm not an expert again, but that uh, it turns out that Europeans and uh, Native Americans are more closely related than Native Americans and Eastern Asians. So, uh, like uh, people in like who are in like Navajo or even okay. Mex Mexicans or Bolivians, who have a high percentage of Native uh, American ancestry, are more closely related to to like Brits or French than they are to Chinese. If that makes sense. As a general, I'm generalizing a lot, but like that's in general, that's true. And so there were some surprising results like that. You're like, whoa, everyone said there's like this land bridge and uh, people 
migrated, uh, you know, uh, across this land bridge uh, during the last glacial maximum when the, the sea, sea level was low. So it was probably the Asians that moved over. And uh, even the phenotype, phenotype is like kind of what uh, the organism, uh, you know, what the genes get expressed as. So it's like, um, you know, you, you could say what it, it's what someone looks like, uh, to put it very crudely. Uh, so even the phenotype, you say, of Native Americans looks kind of Asian or something, maybe. Um, so, but it turns out that's not true, that like they're actually more closely related to the uh, Northern Europeans. And we now know it's because there was like a population in Northern Eurasia that uh, split off. Some of them went East and some went West, kind of uh, very few of them went South, although there was some of that too. Uh, and they mixed it with the local populations. So anyways, there were some interesting like conclusions from looking at people living today. You look mm -hmm. at their DNA and you try to draw some conclusions. And the analogy I draw, uh, like I think that's everyone should be aware of, is uh, what's called historical comparative linguistics. So you look at the languages people speak today, and there are a lot of words that are very similar in different languages. Famous example is the Romance languages, okay? So, sure. And that one's an easy case because we know from history there was a Roman Empire, and Latin was the uh, lingua franca, although there were different dialects, uh, different like vulgar languages they're called in different uh, provinces and such. And, but when it, uh, you can trace the history of it because there was some kind of high Latin, just like today, there was a, there's a high Arabic. Uh, so some languages have what's called a diaglossia where there's a formal form of the language. We don't have this in English, so a lot of English speakers probably don't know this, but in Arabic, there's a formal form of Arabic, okay, standard Arabic, uh, that any, anyone who's like decently educated can read and write, but the spoken forms are quite different. Uh, you have this in Chinese too. So Chinese writing is the same for Mandarin and Cantonese, essentially. I and mean, I think there are some differences, but essentially it's the same, but the spoken forms are quite different. So Latin was the same in the, in the Roman empire. That is to say, there was a standard Latin that if you were like, uh, you went to the local gymnasium and you were like trained in some provincial capital, you would know the standard form, but you also had a vulgar form of Latin that was different. Anyways, we can like trace all that. And when the Roman Empire broke apart, the Catholic Church kept the Latin tradition alive, uh, but these local uh, vulgar dialects uh, grew into what we now know as Italian, Spanish, French, Romanian, uh, etc. So they kind of diverge even more. But and we can trace that because we have the old Latin, so we know what it was kind of like. And then you have like the more modern records. But there were a lot of, as I say, there's a historical record histories like the study of things that have been written down. So we have a historical record. We can compare it to the modern languages, and you can draw some interesting conclusions. There are other languages though we don't have a historical record, mm -hmm. so we just kind of we don't have writing from back then. But we know the modern languages, and so you can kind of like try to piece together stuff. Backtrack. Yeah, you backtrack. Language. Yeah, historical comparative linguistics. So uh, English and Russian are in the same family. Uh, and I bring this up because we both lived in Russia. And uh, <laughs> there, was a, there was a famous British colonialist who noticed that Sanskrit shared a lot in common with Greek. He was in India in the 19th century because they had a colony there. And uh, he was, you know, oppressing the locals and raping women or something. Probably not. Uh, I don't know if he did personally, but certainly a lot of that was going on. <laughs> and, uh, I don't uh, want to throw stones just yet. But yeah, but in his free time, he was like studying languages and he's like, turns out Sanskrit and Greek and English and others have a lot of roots 
not not you know they're not very closely related but there are a lot of these roots where you're like wow that's very similar uh to the greek and it's how is that coincidence that doesn't make any sense that's coincidence like uh, uh to give you an example uh fire in sanskrit is something like agni igni something like igna i forget uh you can mm-hmm. look it up in russian it's agon and in english we have ignite from the from the greek so uh those are all from the same roots so these questions of like how do like all these sounds come the same thing and so anyways there was a you know over many decades there's an effort to uh understand how languages are related to each other, which languages are related to each other, how closely. And then you can even see that all languages naturally change over time. They develop accents and stuff. That's why American English is different than British English, even though they split off, you know, like 300 years ago, they've developed in different trajectories. And so they're different. They sound different. We all know that. And uh, uh, so you can kind of like try to backtrack when did they split and all this kind of stuff. So anyways, again, along the side, but the, the what genetics was doing 10 years ago was the same kind of thing it was like okay we know the modern genetics of the of different people around the world like we've we took samples from a lot of different living people like today and tried to understand how do they relate to each other and you can draw some really interesting conclusions of how different populations are related but there's also a lot of limitations because uh just like in linguistics where the further you go back the more uh, languages change naturally over time so you can only go so far back before you can draw any definitive conclusions and the case of language is like a thousand or 1500 years i mean it depends there are exceptions to that but uh if it's just a spoken language without writing it's like a thousand years maybe before they're just you can't even tell even if they were related it's like uh, they've changed so much it's like they weren't related no uh and in genetics it's the same like uh, the further you go back from modern samples, it gets harder to kind of draw any definitive conclusions for statistical reasons. So, so that's where we were like 10 years ago. There were some interesting conclusions uh, from language and from uh, genetics, modern genetics uh, of kind of where, how people moved around the earth and how people, uh, to put it bluntly, how apes moved out of Africa, became modern humans and populated different parts of the globe and how they interacted with each other. And there was just like a lot of sketch, but it, there wasn't a lot of like detail. What happened 10 years ago is uh, there, there's been a, there was a breakthrough. Uh, it's still being like developed, but uh, there's been a huge breakthrough in taking DNA from old samples mm-hmm. and sequencing it uh so from bones and stuff like jurassic park style is kind of what i'm talking about uh although you can't do dinosaurs that's too far like there is a limit and it's like tens of thousands of years it's not millions of years so you're not unfortunately we're not gonna are you telling me there's no never going to be a jurassic park because that's just burst in my bubble yeah so (laughs) that's complicated but yeah basically probably not you could probably make genetically you can make something that looks like a dinosaur like we saw in the most recent jurassic park where they invented some where they spliced thing. yeah they spliced yeah. some shit together right so i think we could make something that looks and acts like a dinosaur but it would it be an accurate representation of what a dinosaur looked like you know back in the jurassic period no it would not because we can't get that original dna unfortunately uh, no matter how well preserved the samples are you just don't have it so but if you want to make something that looked like a t-rex and kind of walked around like it yeah you probably could like that's the scary aspect of the science uh, I don't know, like mm. doing that, probably not, I'd say, but uh, I think you, Why not? 
good if you wanted to at some point. Giant chicken kind of thing. <laughs> Anyways. Giant uh, chicken. Yeah, yeah. So uh, they're, they're actually, chickens have recessive genes from like their dinosaur ancestry that are not activated, but you can activate a gene in a chicken and grow a tail, for instance. So, and it's very simple. It's like a switch. You don't have to like reprogram the chicken. The chicken already has a program to grow a tail built into the chicken, okay? Because they used to have tails. Their ancestors did. So that program is like built in, like software built in chicken. All you got to do is like flip the switch, activate the gene, and now they're going to grow a tail when they're young. And so you can make a chicken look like more like a dinosaur, like grow fewer feathers, grow a tail, uh, but it will be some weird deformed chicken thing. It's not actually going to be a dinosaur because the chicken's DNA has changed a lot in the intervening period, et cetera. So anyways, man, uh, trying to make this a lecture here, but uh, no, 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 I, I, I'm finding it fascinating. All right. Yeah. So, so what happened 10 years ago is, uh, and I go into details, like I'm not an expert, but I read a couple books on this. Uh, basically the old, old DNA that's like stored in bones and other stuff, other material, it degrades DNA is these like super long molecules. They tend to break up. They're not very stable because they get oxidized. And uh, that's why we age. That's why we get old. And then once you die, there's nothing, your cells aren't splitting and replenishing. So the DNA just like degrades and degrades and degrades. Uh, But what you can do is uh, since you have a lot of cells and a lot of DNA in your body, or, you know, say a human who died like 5,000 years ago, uh, they had a lot of DNA. Every cell had DNA and there's billions of cells. So what you can do is, uh, you know, the original DNA sequencing that we did on living humans, uh, you just assume that you're starting with like full strands of DNA, okay? And then you kind of, uh, again, I don't want to go into detail, but you you do what's called polymerase chain reaction or to amplify the DNA. You create a lot of copies and then you chop it up artificially and then like uh, sequence it. Uh, but anyways, when you have a degraded sample, that's like 5,000 years old, most of the DNA is like junk or it's been chopped up in like random ways. So you don't even know how it's been chopped up. You can't control that process. But what, what uh, basically we have the DNA sequencing of, of modern, like uh, of intact DNA. Okay. Of modern, that's how you sequence like living organisms, including humans or other ones too. And, that was like uh, married to the science of like big data. So what you do is you, you see, you have all these like broken up fragments of DNA, but if you can sequence like uh, thousands of them, then some of them are short, some of them are cut off, some of them are longer and you can kind of, you can grab them in a certain way. You can say, okay, any chunk that has at least this segment of like, you know, uh, hundreds of uh, base pairs that we know all humans have, then we grab that and then we sequence. Some of them are longer, some are shorter. And then you just do like a, you churn it through a computer, say, okay, some of them are longer, some are shorter. Some were like this part, some were like a, a later part in the DNA strand. But I think you understand what I'm getting at that you can use a computer to kind of, you have thousands of chunks and it's like a puzzle. They don't all like have the same strands. Some of them overlap a little, but by doing like some advanced computer stuff, you can put together the full strand, if you see what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was the advance that we had like 10 years ago. And because of that, uh, for the first time ever, you could uh, take out ancient DNA, what's called ancient DNA or paleogenomics. And you could you could sequence the DNA from a ancient uh, person 
uh, and I'm not talking like way, way back. I'm talking like historical times, like even uh, a thousand years ago or something. And you could ask like, uh, okay, so just like I told you before, we can ask how much are modern day Europeans related to modern day Chinese people, right? Mm-hmm. But then the question becomes, how much are people a thousand years ago who were living in Europe related to modern day Chinese people? That's a different question. I, I sorry to ancient Chinese people, right? You can so like you can look at how did populations change over time? How did the genes flow around? And that can confirm some like confirm or disprove some really interesting historical or prehistorical questions about that we had from the archaeological record um, about how did populations move around? And like there's some really profound conclusions. So uh, I don't you know. You can ask questions if you want, but uh, just to give you one example, okay? For a long time, there's an archaeological debate about um, do the artifacts move or do the people move? So, we, you know, the, the classic archaeological example they give is like, so we know that in prehistoric Europe, so I'm talking pre-Greek uh, times or like four or 5,000 years ago, six, maybe even longer, six, 7,000 years ago, so even pre-Egyptian times, that there were certain uh, developments of like stone tools that seemed to spread. Like they, uh, they didn't exist before in the archeological record, you know, cause you're looking at the sedimentation, but then all of a sudden around Europe, you had like certain similar stone tools. So there's a question. Does that mean that like people borrowed the design or like they were taught the design of how to make those tools? Or mm-hmm. does it mean that like other people moved in and killed off the earlier people and they're, you know, the population spread for the people who knew how to make the tools, right? Like, uh, and the, the classic example that archaeologists give is uh, if you were an archaeologist like a thousand years from now and you had corpses buried, you might be like, oh, in the 20th century, so in like 1950, there were all these different clothes people were wearing. But by 2000, there were blue jeans fucking everywhere. So, like, <laughs> so the Americans must Still have on. taken Still. over. The Americans must have taken over, killed off everyone, and just populated uh, those areas, you know, because that's the record we have is their tools or whatever. And the bones is like very hard to draw any conclusions of what did these people look like or anything. So, but the point is, once you can look at the bones and you can DNA, you can like look you at the can DNA. analyze their DNA and understand yes. a little bit about who they were genetically and where they exactly. came from. Exactly. And so there are some like really interesting inclusions uh, and a lot of outstanding questions in archaeology have been resolved from this. So there was a classic uh, debate in um, archaeology, maybe one of the biggest ones and in linguistics as well of uh, where did the Indo-Europeans come from? So, you know, as we talked about the Indo-Europeans uh, otherwise known as the Aryans, uh, kind of, uh, although that's a, I mean, there's a whole racist element to this, which we shouldn't get into because it's actually, they don't understand probably, uh, not even probably definitely what's going on, but, um, there is like a racist offshoot of this kind of uh, question, but there are these Indo-Europeans who moved into, uh, over many generations, centuries, even into, uh, what's now, uh, India, the Indian subcontinent, but then also into Europe. That was around 6,000 years ago. And uh, we know there must have been some people moving around there because there's archaeological record of some of these uh, groups. Uh, it started uh, on the steppe in southern Russia, so around Samar, maybe a little south, like northern Kazakhstan. And uh, 
then there were some offshoots, but it gave rise to what's called the quarterware culture in uh, uh, Europe because they make certain specific pots and they start to look all the same around Europe. And anyways, there's always this question of, did these people like, we know that the languages are related because uh, again, we can look at the, we know that French is related to uh, Hindi in India because some of the words are the mm. same. Just as we know, English is related to Russian. And I could give you some examples. I think we talked about this before. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Some examples, just uh, to very briefly, is like uh, stuff on the face is obvious. Like nose is nose in Russian. Brow is brov. Uh, uh, then there's other ones like uh, honey in Russian is miod, but that's related to English mead. Uh, mm -hmm. Milk is molako. So it's like molako, milk. Yeah. Are related. Uh, another good one is... Uh, uh, the word for wheel is coloso or colso, which is related to English circle, circle, colso, circle. Uh, obviously, it's the same root. So there are these words that are the same, and you're like, okay, we know that these people shared language, and uh, or you know maybe they didn't move around, but they shared language. But now that we can look at the genetics, uh, it's pretty interesting because we now know for a fact that the people who were living in that area in Russia basically moved into Europe and displaced a lot of the population. And while the geneticists are very, always very careful the way they uh, use the language, it basically looks like they invaded and took over uh, violently probably uh, because, because the, you can look at, uh, so this is, a, this is a great historical fact. We didn't even know like five or 10 years ago that uh, there was ancient hunt, hunt, ancient farmer population that came out of Anatolia, modern day Turkey, that lived in Europe up to that point. Mm. They have a very specific genetic signature. And they were living everywhere in Europe, including the British Isles. But then you had these Indo-Europeans come in uh, uh, that our languages come from, including English, and they displaced those people. But you can compare the average uh, genetic displacement in your DNA Versus the mitochondrial DNA, which I don't know if you know this, but your mitochondria come from your mother. You don't inherit from your father. Mm, okay. Interesting. So you can look at what percentage of, so basically uh, what they've done is they've looked at, say, in, uh, in England, uh, we know these, there were some people living there a long time ago, like 6,000 years ago, and we, we've dug up their bones and we've sequenced their DNA. And you can ask, what percentage of the modern day Brits come from those ancient DNA, right? Because there was this wave of people moving in, these Indo-Europeans who came over. And I'm talking like way pre-Saxons and all that. Saxons were also descended from the Indo-Europeans, you know, and all that. But before that, and it turns out Brits are 90% uh, from the Indo-Europeans. So only 10% of British DNA comes from the people who were there more than 6,000 years ago. So they were like mm. wiped out. They're gone. Like their DNA signature is just gone. And then in some areas like Spain, uh, Spain is like 40% Indo-European, 60% uh, their old population. But what's interesting, because you look at the mitochondrial DNA, so it's inherited from the mother, uh, it turns out all of their inheritance from the old population was from mothers. That is to say, all of the men, uh, and the genetics put this like very, they always put it vaguely like uh, there was a, you know, a, uh, the men, the males of the traditional population were, had no access to females to mate with, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I think we know what that means. It's like, if all of the men in your Y chromosome, all of your inheritance comes from these new men who moved into the area, 
but the uh, X chromosome is mixed. Uh, and the mitochondria uh, all comes from the old lineage, not all, but a lot of it. Then um, it basically means all the men who were living there were either killed off or were like run off into the hills and all their women were taken. And uh, that's where you get modern day Spaniards from. So uh, we're from this. So that was actually the last big cultural mixing event in Europe of different genetic populations. Um, so anyways, dude, this is like, I'm, I'm rambling No, but already. that's, no, but, but that it's kind of interesting that there's a way to scientifically, you know, uh, of, of course, not that archaeology, uh, don't tell this to Indiana Jones, it's not some sort of science, it is, but it's a lot of, a lot of it is guesstimation, right? You, you dig up, a, you know, the remnants of a civilization or a particular area and you think that you, all right, we can piece together what happened by looking at the things that were left behind that were preserved in certain ways uh, and that kind of thing. And now you have a much more scientific explanation, right? Some, some actual hard science that can go with some of the guesswork, right? So you have the, the tangible, as we were talking about before with my topic, tangible kind of physical things that are evidence, but you couple that with scientific DNA aspects to come up with some uh, again, some much more hard conclusions about what happened in the past. Yeah. yeah. I think that's pretty and, interesting. Uh, just to get like, just to go through a, f like, I'm just going to turn these off because I know we're running out of time, but just a uh, couple like crazy insights. So one, uh, I didn't know about this, but, uh, um, we now know, I mean, I just learned about this recently. We now know that there are no wild horses anywhere existing in the world anymore. They're, they're all gone. For a long time, there were these horses in Mongolia that Persia Walsi's horse. I've been to Mongolia and I'd heard about it that were the last remaining population of horses. But uh, they've now dug up old horse bones from when horses were first domesticated on the on the steppe, like in Kazakhstan in the Botai culture, it's called. Um, and uh, we now know that the horses that are in uh, Mongolia were actually domesticated horses that this culture had like 5,000 years ago. And then they got feral. So they'd been domesticated and so, because we know that from the bones that these horses, the Perzhawalski horses are not the same as the old wild horses because we've DNA sequenced those two and none of those have remained. The Perzhawalski horses are the ones that were actually domesticated and then got feral. Uh, another good example, we now know, I think I brought, I mentioned this to you, that the Polynesians had sexual contact with the South Americans mm -hmm. in pre-Columbus times. So, uh, and we know that because there's what's called admixture where genes from South America entered the Polynesian population in Polynesia. I'm talking about like the Hawaiians, the Tongans, the Easter Islanders. Uh, they're like, we know genetically definitively that uh, there was some uh, contact, although it looks like it was very limited. Like it might've just been one group, which actually makes a lot of sense because uh, a lot of people don't think about this, but the Polynesians, it's pretty amazing that um, the Polynesians colonized the entire Pacific Ocean, like in prehistoric times, without ships. Uh, they just had like canoes, uh, which is ridiculous if you think about it. How do you go like five thousand miles in a canoe? I mean, they probably weren't going that much this time. <laughs> but I mean, seriously, the navigational achievements, dude. If you put me and you in a canoe like that, we would die within like four days, dude. These people were doing like two month journeys in canoes. Four days? I think I think you're overestimating. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I'd kill you first and then I, I'd drink your blood and eat your flesh and maybe I'd make it to six days or something. <laughs> yeah, it's possible. So, yeah, <laughs> but these guys were going like two months and uh, doing pretty well. 
and uh uh anyways it's like uh it's fascinating that uh they were you know spreading across pacific and they probably at some point reached south america because if you look at where they spread they made it to hawaii they made it to each island the closest islands why would they stop there because they don't they didn't have maps of where what's beyond that you know they were just kind of guessing they like they literally didn't have a, any maps at all so they would have naturally just kept going and so they probably reached the coast of South America. And now we have evidence that genetically uh, they did interbreed, uh, you know, with the local population. And uh, some of those people went back to Polynesia. I don't think there's any evidence in uh, South America that the, like some of those genes crossed over. Although there is these weird Brazilian tribes that have some evidence of ancient DNA from uh, like um, similar to Australian Aborigines, but they were probably people that colonized the Americas first. So there were multiple ways of colonization in the Americas. Anyways, there's a lot of these questions that like uh, we have a lot of insight on now that uh, we didn't uh, that long ago. Uh, and w one last example is uh, the caste system in India, which is pretty famous. And it now looks like um, India was invaded by uh descendant group of these Indo-Europeans that settled in northern or in like Central Asia and then was invaded by, by these guys and the Indian uh, uh, you know foundation myths to this day like that the Brahmins have uh, Bhagavad Gita and all that um, describe this and that there was an invasion by these Aryans and there was, there was a history of that and now we know genetically it's true that there was a uh, a group that invaded India uh, that's kind of set about ruling this large population and they set up different castes because they wanted to preserve like the ruling group that were their descendants. There were so many locals probably that like they couldn't assimilate all of them, you know, kind of thing. So they set up like different castes, which I'm sure evolved over time. It's not like they set up the monocasts back then, but like they did start probably some kind of endogamy which uh what it's called where um there's a marriage prohibition so different groups can't marry with other groups kind of thing so their children can marry within their group uh and probably some of them local wives and stuff so they were interbreeding but uh the locals couldn't if you you know if you didn't have one parent you couldn't breed into the group of the people invaded anyways and it looks like that caste system is carried down to the modern day like like three thousand years basically because of this invasion that was set up by these rulers as a method of control of the local population that kind of thing so like there's some really interesting like kind of mind-blowing revelations when you read into it uh that, no like, it's uh you've solved a lot of these like outstanding questions that have been around for like 100 150 years since uh comparative linguistics started uh when we first understood that there were some connections between different languages now we know like where the original europeans came from we know all your indo-european languages which is like half the world came from southern russia northern kazakhstan it's like several billion people that speak those languages and uh we we now understand how they invaded europe not perfectly there's a lot of outstanding questions but they invaded the Indian subcontinent. They invaded Europe. They invaded the Middle East uh, semi-successfully. They did not invade uh, or move into uh, China, or if they did, it was not successful. So there was a civilization there already. This is the same time as like ancient Egypt. So they were not so successful in the Middle East and the Caucasus, and they were not so successful in China because there were already people there. But uh, the rest of it, they colonized. And anyways, it's very interesting to me, uh, these questions. No, I... You know, I think, I mean, it definitely, it answers 
a lot of historical questions. And actually, when you started describing it to me, uh, when we decided to actually talk about this kind of topic, is there any kind of modern implication uh, for it at all? I know, obviously, we're answering a lot of questions about the, about the past, and, and that definitely helps us in some respects. But is there uh, anything that we can kind of glean from it for, for present day or perhaps for the future in some way? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there's obvious historical conclusions about the, um, some people still have what's called the myth of the noble savage, that like um, ancient people were actually pretty peace-loving and all that. And I think this kind of evidence just shows that, uh, again, it wasn't that the blue jeans just moved around. It was that people were killing off uh, the local inhabitants. So there was a lot of that going on. Like, uh, uh, So in some ways, I would say to the modern world, that means that there's some innate, um, you know, bad character to the human condition, I guess, if you want to put it that way, which I'm not saying that's, um, you know, in some ways that's encouraging almost because it's like uh, so much has gone wrong that you think, oh, we must have fucked something up kind of. But I think the, maybe the more healthy attitude is like, no, this is an innate part of humanity that we need to try to control and to, you know, tamper down and like not let it get the best of us. So, the wars we've had recently are probably more the norm than they are the exception. Although the scale mm -hmm. and magnitude is probably worse because of technology. But uh, and then the other thing I just say is there are some interesting uh, genetic uh, uh, maybe conclusions. Uh, one of which is that like everyone back in the day was banging everyone else too and having kids. So like. Uh, <laughs> We now know that Neanderthals interbred with humans. We didn't know that 10 years ago. You know, that that was a big discovery. So all of us, all modern humans, uh, at least outside of Africa, have some Neanderthal DNA. And we also have uh, some what's called Denisovan DNA. So we learned there's another there's another group of humans that were as distinct as Neanderthals called Denisovans. And we know that from a small pinky bone that in a cave from Siberia that was uh, sequenced the DNA and then you look at how close is it to modern humans and it turns out there's some uh, they, we share those genes and uh, there's there's some interesting conclusions that like the um, Denisovans probably had a, a adaptation to high altitude like in the Tibetan plateau in Tibet so some of the Tibetans have a higher percentage of Denisovan DNA so some of their high altitude up adaptation like the sherpas famously you know they climb mountains even though they're small they carry all this gear some of that is probably from this other group of humans that lived like 50 100 years ago uh that were adapted to high altitude and like passed on some of those genes so like there are some weird some crazy like conclusions like that uh that have some modern historical relevance uh but i think just in general just the understanding that uh uh they're like the old theory was uh, there were Neanderthals and there were like Homo erectus, which you didn't talk about. They existed hundreds of thousands of years ago. And then you had these modern humans that appeared and then kind of outcompeted all these other groups and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like there was this theory that um, modern humans just kind of were uh, like generated and then we're fixed. Okay. Like we were created and then uh, I don't want to make this biblical, but it's like that the modern humans were uh, just their own thing that got created. And then we outcompeted all these other 
prehistoric humans, okay? And we're the latest in a string, in a chain, the most advanced, the smartest and all that, right? What we now know is that's not really true. There are a lot of different groups of humans. They're all interbreeding. Uh, we're a product of all of them. Like we now know that some humans moved into Eurasia and developed maybe what we call more modern traits, and then they moved back into Africa. It used to th- we used to think it was all just an outflow from Africa, but it turns out they moved back into Africa. So a lot of Africans have these Eurasian traits because groups moved back to Africa and bred with the people there. So basically, like the big takeaway is uh, there's no like one standard definition of like what is human, what's not, and uh, the like uh not to make it sound corny but like this diversity thing is pretty real and it goes way back and there's no such thing as like a like clean aryan race or something like that or some like net like the original humans or original you know europeans like there's nothing like that man like everyone was just mixing around all those genes were mixing around and uh like humans were actually probably more diverse twenty thousand years ago than they are now like they were more that's interesting yeah, so like we, we actually have tended to homogenize over time. We're much more similar now than we were. Well, with past. that, I guess that probably makes more sense as civilization became a thing, right? As culture became a thing, you you start to actually group people in certain sects and look down and up upon different sects of people as they start to kind of gather and congregate and civilize a little bit. Uh, that can, yeah, lead to more homogenization and less diversity as opposed to a more nomadic existence yeah mm-hmm. something like that but uh, that's actually an interesting uh you know idea to float around that to, if you were to tell again not in the racist aspect but the idea that you 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 are part of a, a gene pool a sect a group of people that are pure in some way or different in some way than another when in actuality, scientifically, you are not actually that uh, that is an aberration that uh, actually thousands of years ago, tens of thousands of years ago, um, everyone was much closer to uh, genetically similar and uh, much more diverse than they are now. So everyone has a little bit of everything in them. Yeah. In a way. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe that's a little bit of a lesson that can be gleaned from some of this ancient science. It's actually a very fascinating topic. It's pretty interesting. I can't believe you've already read two books about it. That's uh, yeah. That's yeah. some deep I read diving. Some, and then there's some good stuff online. And I, I sent you some of these podcasts. Uh, it's actually a super rapid moving field. So the, for instance, the, uh, the DNA evidence that um, South Americans interbred with um, Polynesians pre-Columbian context, so before Columbus. Uh, so we knew already that, like, uh, and I read about this, that sweet potatoes were in Polynesia, okay? So sweet potatoes, uh, I don't, you, you probably know this, but potatoes in general come from South America. They didn't exist sure. in Europe, yeah. even though they're a staple of Irish cuisine and Russian cuisine. They did not exist before, you know, 1500 in Europe. Uh, and they actually took a lot longer to catch on. So uh, potatoes didn't exist in Russia until like 200 years ago, 250 years ago. So uh, anyways, uh, but uh, so we knew that like um, the Europeans had been in South America and then they, the Spanish famously went into Polynesia. They colonized the Philippines, for instance. That's why there's still a lot of Spanish influence in the Philippines. Uh, so they, they brought stuff with them from South America there. But, and there was always this question of, um, uh, there are yams everywhere in the Philippines, like sweet potatoes. And 
there was good archaeological evidence that it predated the European context. So the question is like, how did these South American yams get to uh, the Phil the not the Philippines, but the Polynesia? They didn't. I don't think they made it as far west as the Philippines, but into Polynesia, like the into the Pacific, which Pacific is a one third of the world. Okay, one third of the world surface is the Pacific Ocean. It's huge, and uh, you know it was never really understood. And like uh, I think it's still maybe we don't totally understand because the dating is like kind of complicated at what point did the potatoes make it there uh but now at least we have evidence that um the polynesians were just exploring at random kind of they're just setting out in random directions that's how they discovered like hawaii i mean there were there were humans on hawaii when the uh, uh europeans got there and like i don't think a lot of people i think everyone should pause and reflect a little bit of like how do you go like 1500 miles not even know where to go you don't have a map and somehow you land on hawaii and set up a civilization like have a king and stuff it's like that's pretty fucking wild if you think about it for a second well but, think uh, about how far they go without even and i'm not even saying modern technology i would say like kind of uh modern naval technology ancient naval technology right they had basically nothing in in, in terms they had of no that. compasses like it was all star-based navigation and wave yeah. wave-based navigation and it? hawaii if you look at a map like you're kind of shooting at fish in a barrel right you're kind of you're uh you are going to be lucky if you hit that if you're just sailing in a random direction Actual that's the point time. man that's the yeah. point so it's like if you have to imagine that back in the day they were just kind of sailing at random yeah so we so know the that opposite there were, of shooting fish in a barrel and we know uh, there were people uh, in the americas the americas were populated at that time okay because the polynesian expansion was like a thousand years ago so it's not that long ago actually the americas had been populated for a long time and they were sailing across the pacific colonizing all these islands but they didn't know where they were in advance they're just kind of setting off and trying to find islands so uh, to me, at least, it, it would almost be uh, irrational to think they didn't reach South America because, like, if they're just shooting off in random in different directions, you're going to hit California or Central America or, like, uh, Colombia. You know, you're going to hit one of those areas, uh, Chile. Like, it's just natural if you look at the ocean. Like, you, if you're just going off at random and keep going east – you're going to hit like the Americas. So, and now we have evidence that they did, uh, they did hit the Americas. They at least, um, uh, you know, there were at least a couple children produced from that. Probably they, it might've been that they had a couple kids and they brought them all back to Polynesia. So maybe they stayed for like a couple of years and then, uh, uh, you know, got some knowledge of how potatoes grow, uh, you know, kind of like pilgrim style. Like you talk to the locals, you kind of develop some, basic uh pigeon language you can understand and then you, you maybe yeah there's some like hanky panky and there's some kids that come out of that and then the uh the local women i mean the you know the american women and the uh from the americas and uh uh their kids go back to polynesia with them and they start a genetic lineage that now we can trace because we look at these ancient bones in those areas so it's not that we look at the modern polynesians necessarily we look at the the ones from like 500 years ago, we dig up the bones and you can see a real signal that's like similar to South America. So that's before there were any Europeans that ever reached any of those islands. And we know from the historical record, like when the first European ships reached the Pacific, right? But now we can look say 700 years ago. So like pre-Columbus and there were bones in these islands that were related to South American bones. You know what I mean? And so yeah. the only, uh, and that's an amazing feat. 
Yeah, the yeah. only conclusion is there was some contact there. Uh, which, by the way, the Vikings reached Canada, as we know. I mean, that's well documented now. Sure. The Vikings set up a settlement in Canada. I don't think there's any genetic evidence of interbreeding, but there could have been. There could have been kids from that, you know, and maybe we should look more closely at those bones and stuff. Maybe they were also, you know, getting it all in, uh, in those huts they built. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think if history has taught us anything, everyone's getting along with someone at some point. So, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> on that note, we've uh, we've passed the two hour mark, at least in the total uh, time on the call. I'm not sure exactly what the pot is. It's probably just under two hours. But uh, thank you for the information, the feedback on the uh, the idea of ancient DNA. For those of you still listening, thanks for listening a bunch. Uh, Bob, we'll have you on again soon for sure. And uh, wait until you get another topic uh, down your, um, you know, uh, under your belt. And so that you can read some more books and articles and educate us about the next thing. But I found it actually quite fascinating, pretty interesting. So thanks, thanks a lot, man. man. I'm going to keep collecting those uh, tokens, you know. Uh, let's, yeah, let's look get for those, those uh, tweets. For those I'm going to buy some tweets. Yeah, some NFTs. Yeah, we'll cut, we'll cut up this podcast and put it for sale up there. Yeah, for, uh, for five bucks. See we'll if see anyone's going to buy it. Um, all right. Well, thank you for uh, everyone out there listening. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, give us a listen. And uh, if you want to join me on sometime, give me a shout. Uh, until next time, I am Sex and the Frog.